0: morning. So we we began uh, the semester on Monday talking about sin, uh, which in some ways uh, was easy. I think most of us would agree that uh, we are all to some degree uh, experts on the topic, Um, but grace, grace is a different matter. Um, As we looked at the anatomy of sin and now we move into the anatomy of grace, um, we approach it a little bit differently. Um, When I think of grace, the things that come to mind for me Um, I was thinking about it this week, like, what immediately comes to mind when I think of grace? Uh, The first thing that came to my mind when I thought about grace was the birth of my daughters. Um, Being in a room um, and my daughters came into the world. I I remember it um, well. I remember every bit about it. I remember what the doctor said to me. Um, I remember seeing uh, my eldest daughter Henry's head come out with all this huge tuft of hair. Um, that That was a moment of grace. Uh, I think of the laughter of my dad. Um, my dad, when he really, really gets laughing, he hunches over and he can barely contain himself and his eyes start watering. So he's, he's laughing and trying to hold it together and he has to wipe his eyes. And, um, I think of stumbling upon a doe uh, and her, her fawn in the forest um, on an early morning. One of those things you don't expect, but when it happens, it's a moment of grace. Um, I think of In-N-Out Burger, The grace of God. Um, But we experience those events as grace because they are gifts uh, that come from deep in the heart of God, uh, gifts that he pours out on mankind. And while they're usually, um, well, while they're really not very common uh, at all, we call them gifts of common grace because those are graces that he pours out on believers and non-believers alike. Uh, But this morning, we're going to look more closely at at special or saving grace. Uh, As we begin to uncover the anatomy of saving grace, we'll find something very interesting. Uh, When we looked at sin and we looked at the anatomy of sin and how it unfolded, we really saw the anatomy of a lie. We saw the anatomy of something that consumes and devours by its very nature. But saving grace is different. Saving grace is more, um, I picture it like a sunburst in the middle. Here's this thing saving grace. And then shooting out from it are all these like radiant rays like coming out of a a sun. And when you learn more about those rays that shoot out from that sunburst in the middle, you begin to understand the sunburst in the middle a little bit more. So the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9, we see some of those radiating effects come into view and into focus. Um, At the end of Acts chapter 6, Uh, Stephen has been stoned to death, uh, a man of God. And as he's stoned to death, we're told that Saul, the Pharisee, looks on in approval. We pick up later in Acts chapter 9, and we read about this man, Saul. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And actual better um, translation there is breathing in murderous threats. He literally is being fed by his anger and his hatred and his desire to eradicate the people of the way. Now, they weren't called Christians yet. There were these people whose lives had been transformed by this encounter with the risen Jesus. By Paul's own account, here's what he says about himself. This is the kind of man that he was. He says, I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So in his obsession to hunt them down, We're told that he goes to the high priest and he asks him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So the hunter is on his way to find the hunted. He gets letters to go 150 miles from Jerusalem, a full week's travel, and he's going to eradicate these people whose lives had been changed, who identified themselves as the way, the way of new life. Now, Paul's likely, Saul, is likely traveling in a caravan of sorts, enough men there to help him arrest and bring back these people. And Saul, like David, was a murderer. But unlike David, it was Saul's mission and his objective in a very real way. It was the life breath that he was living at that point in time. And just as David sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, and Joab, and the slain officers, were in fact sins against the Lord, so too was Saul's sin. But Saul's sin had the added nuance of being committed in the name of the Lord, who he was in fact persecuting. He claimed to be of God, and he was persecuting God himself. We're told that as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven, a sunburst, flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, he gives a a slightly fuller account and he says, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The beauty of common grace is both eclipsed and more fully understood by seeing the author of that grace. And Paul saw with his eyes Jesus, alive, glorified, and risen from the dead. Now goads, goads were sticks that were used to prod oxen in a particular direction. And when they didn't like the direction they were being prodded, they would kick their feet out against the sticks. And Jesus says to Paul, that's what you've been doing. There's a direction that I've been prodding you've been kicking back against it. Saul says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, kurios or sir? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. I think we'd be safe if we'd bet on the fact that Paul knew the answer to his question before Jesus actually spoke. But now, in the literal flash of an eye, Saul's world is turned upside down. He who said he was on God's side is now confronted by God. And what does he expect? What does he think is going to happen? If this is, in fact, the living Jesus, and he has been persecuting the followers of Jesus, is he right to expect death, to expect judgment, to expect a sentence on his evil? He doesn't know he's about to experience mercy, forgiveness, favor, and our first radiating ray is traced from that sunburst, grace, is undeserved saving grace is undeserved we'll just call it grace from here on out for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God grace is a gift undeserved but we'll find also that it is a gift far more complex and far-reaching than we can imagine Jesus says to Saul he says now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do The men traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now scripture seems clear that at this point, Saul has not yet been given a new heart. His eyes are open, but he can't see. He's blind, so his body is functioning literally as a metaphor for his heart. And he's going to spend three days in blindness, not eating, not drinking, but praying to God. And so, in the literal blink of an eye, in the flash of light, everything that he believed, everything that Saul held dear, everything that he knew to be true, things he was willing to put people to death for, were turned upside down. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, the law was the magnetic center of his entire world. It held every other piece together. And now everything is being rearranged by Messiah, by this Jesus who's alive and who has, in fact, raised from the dead. And his life will never be the the same. There's a great story um, told by a a classical composer named Eric Whitaker. He's 41 years old. Always wanted to be a pop star when he was growing up. Uh, When he got to college at UNLV, the choir conductor knew that he sang, invited him to join the choir. So the first day in choir, he comes in and he sits down. They open the scores, the conductor gives a downbeat, and they launch into a song. They launch into the Kyrie. They launch into the Kyrie from the Requiem by Mozart. And here's what he heard hear this. I imagine that's the audible version of what Saul might have seen. And Eric Whitaker says this. He says, my entire life I had seen in black and white, and suddenly everything was in shocking technicolor, the most transformative experience I've ever had. In that single moment, hearing dissonance and harmony and people singing, people together, this shared vision, and I felt for the first time in my life that I was part of something bigger than myself, something true grace is undeserved and grace reorders our hearts so saul is in damascus blind and praying we're told that in damascus there was a disciple named ananias the lord called to him in a vision ananias yes lord he answered the lord told him go to the house of judas on straight street and ask for a man from tarsus named saul for he is praying in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Now, it's not surprising that Ananias is hesitant. He knows of Saul and he knows why he's there. What he doesn't know is that God is going to use Ananias to help him display saving grace to Saul, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the peoples of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He says, go, this man, this man that you're afraid of, this man is mine, and I have work for him to do. He will proclaim my name to the Gentiles, to the kings, to all of Israel, to the world, and he will suffer. For my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it and placing his hands on Saul he said brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias places his hands on Saul and picture this Ananias who was Ananias who was the hunted the one afraid comes And he lays his hands on the hunter, the hunted ministering to the hunter. And he says, brother Saul. He proclaims Paul's new relationship to the members of the way. Jesus has sent me here so that you might see again, or that you might actually see really for the first time and be filled with the Holy Spirit, a man he sought to kill ministering to him and laying his hands on him. Grace. Grace is undeserved. Grace reorders our hearts. And grace is experienced in the community of brothers and sisters. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And the Holy Spirit enters Paul. Saul. I'll do that all the time. The Holy Spirit enters Saul. And he literally becomes a new man. The heart of flesh that he had is transformed, the heart of stone is transformed to a heart of flesh. He comes alive. One of my dearest friends in California, um, his name's Tim, about two and a half weeks ago, he called me uh, early one morning. Um, He was in shock. His his wife of five years um, had died that morning. And he's telling me the story of what happened. Um, And it's totally surreal as he's telling the story, but uh, she'd woken up with chest pains, um, found some aspirin, went to the emergency room, and they're driving around looking for the the, uh, emergency room exit. And they're in the car, and as they're sitting there, she gasps. and goes, (gasps) and falls over onto his shoulder, gone. And while Tim is telling me about it, we're talking about death and life, and it's like Paul. She went from life to death, but into true and full life in the presence of Christ. And Saul went from a life in darkness to death in his unification with Jesus to life as a son of the living God. And that is how he would live out the rest of his days, how we are called to live out our days in true and abiding life in the Son who gives life. He stands with his new brother, Ananias, reconciled to God's church and reconciled to the Lord himself, and he sees, he sees the world clearly. He knows God, he repents, of his sin and he's baptized and brought into the fellowship of believers. So a man named Saul who claimed God walked on the Damascus road and there he actually met God. A man who walked in darkness encountered the light. A man in darkness was blinded so that he could see. A man who killed died to himself and was made new. The grace of God, it gives life. So we look at the anatomy of grace, we see it's undeserved. It reorders our hearts. It's experienced in community. It gives sight to the blind. It brings repentance and it gives life. And it comes from the heart of God. It's a free gift from the Father from the creator of all things. Frederick Buechner has a great quote about grace. He says, a crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. Have to do. Now, I skipped over two things that happened with Saul two rays of grace that I think sometimes we overlook. I think at times we might be tempted to see grace as an end unto itself. It's by grace we are saved. And when we're saved, we go to heaven, and heaven is the end game, right? But Paul is not just saved by grace, the end. He is saved by grace, and grace brings mission, Grace brings a call. Hear what Jesus says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Paul is to carry and proclaim the name of Jesus. The grace that he's given calls him to a mission. And we are called to that same mission. We are called to carry the name of Jesus. Now we could talk about what it means to carry the name of Jesus, but I think it's far more important for us to simply ask a question. How are you carrying the name of Jesus? How am I carrying the name of Jesus? Because if you've received the grace of God and have been made new and you're His, you carry His name. So how are you carrying it? To whom? Are you carrying it? What does it mean to you to carry the name of Jesus? Those are questions we want to ask ourselves, questions we need and I would even say have to ask ourselves as followers of the risen Christ. How are we carrying his name? How would he have us carry his name? And then finally, grace brings life but it also brings suffering. In verse 16, Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. After this encounter, Paul writes and talks a lot about suffering. Philippians 3, he says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Earlier in Philippians, he says, it's been granted to you, to us, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And talking to Timothy, he says, "Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus." Paul talks about suffering a lot, and it appears that with grace comes suffering for all of us. So I ask, are we suffering for Christ? Are we supposed to suffer for Christ? Are we supposed to suffer with Christ? Most of us, I'm guessing, have not been imprisoned. Most of us have not been beaten, threatened because of our faith. But Jesus' suffering was far far, far more widely encompassing than simply the end of his life. Far more encompassing than simply the beatings. He suffered throughout his entire life. Are we suffering? What does it mean to suffer? We're going to explore that more over the rest of this semester. Um, But ask yourselves, am I suffering for Jesus? Because I think if the answer is no, we want to ask ourselves why. We want to ask ourselves, what does it mean to suffer for Jesus? Then we want to go to the scripture. We want to talk to our brothers and sisters. How am I supposed to suffer? with Jesus. I want to close with a story. Once upon a time there was a sinner who was walking in darkness and he met Jesus and Jesus extended to that sinner saving grace and it was undeserved and it reordered his heart and his passions and his desires and it gave him community and family That allowed him to truly see clearly for the first time. And he repented of his sin and was given life. And he was called to mission that was way too big for him. But God gave him the spirit by which to work. And he suffered for Christ as he awaited his return. And like Nathan said to David, you're the man. I say to you, you are that man. You are that woman. This is your story if you are in Christ. This is grace. Some of you asked about the fire. Well, couple, two people asked me after, Monday, after Monday's um, chapel. Was I ever caught? Did anybody ever find out about the, about the bathroom? And no one ever found out. Actually, that was <laughs> in chapel. That was the first time I'd ever told that story. Um, which was probably wise. Uh, I won't say that it's grace that kept me from being discovered, but I will tell you this. Two years later, I was home, I was reading the book of Luke over Christmas break, and I met Jesus. That was grace. He extended saving grace to me, and to this day, I live and I am learning what it means. To live in the grace and the knowledge of the risen Christ who has extended to me freely something that I never could have earned or merited, grace by which to live. That's what he offers to all of us. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the grace that you extend to us. May we live in it, may we understand it more fully, and may we worship you because of it. We give you praise in the mighty name of Jesus.